Good morning. My name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very glad to be with you today. If you have a Bible, a copy of the Bible with you or near you, then please find our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that Jesus began his ministry with a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And in that sermon, Jesus begins his ministry by describing the church as a city on a hill. And then remarkably, Jesus ends the Bible with the same sermon. He ends the Bible by describing the church as, once again, a city on a hill. And so we're in the midst of a series of sermons where we're looking to the Bible for wisdom, for God's wisdom on how we can be a kind of church in this moment, in this moment that we're living through here in America. How can we be a kind of church that is a light a city of light, um, a bright city, shining in the darkness during uh, plague and political hostility and economic hardship and racial tension. And now with our own president, um, who's contracted a a life-threatening virus. What does it mean for us to be a church the way God describes the church in this moment, in this country, in this community? And we all have opinions, and we all have insights, and we all have kind of gut-level reactions to the stress of the debate, or the stress of now that our president is sick. And, and we're, what we're trying to do is we're, we're coming together Sunday after Sunday in our worship and in our sermons, and when we connect during the week in our small group, and what we're trying to do is to bring our perspectives and, and we're trying to bring our reactions into line with the wisdom the Bible offers us for being a church, being followers of Jesus in moments like this. And what have we learned over the last few weeks? What we've seen is that our first reaction to a society in turmoil, our first reaction in moments like this must be lament. We should not simply move along without pausing and reflecting on the distress in our own lives and in our communities and in the world. We need to take in the pain. That's part of what the church does. It brings in the pain. And then it brings that pain to God. We've seen how Jesus did that. How Jesus learned from the Psalms. That is the first reaction. And so when Lazarus dies, he says, take me to the tomb. He brings in the pain and he weeps there with his dear friend Lazarus. And then in Romans chapter 8, we saw a remarkable picture of the church filled with the Spirit of God in a kind of wordless lament. Over the groaning of creation. This strange lament kind of praying that happens when we find ourselves struck mute by the pain. By the blows. By the despair. 
by the anger and confusion. We only have sighs and groans. And in these times, it is the Holy Spirit of God himself that is just as much at a loss for words as we are. And so to be a shining city on a hill today with gates wide open, pledging our allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and inviting others to come in and find healing in Jesus Christ, the thing we must do first is lament. Now I keep saying first. We must lament first because lament is only the beginning. It must be the first move but not the only move. For biblically wise perception of what's going on in the world right now and reaction to it, we have to start by stopping. By not following through with our knee-jerk instincts. But we have to start by pausing, reflecting, pulling in the pain, offering it to God, and then what comes next? Well, that's our New Testament reading this morning. That's Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Here we are at the beginning of the church. This is a story from the very beginning of the church. Persecution has driven the original followers of Jesus. It's driven them out of Jerusalem. And that original group... A uh, part of them has now ended up about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in the Antioch area in the city of Antioch in the Syrian area. Now this city, Syrian Antioch, it is a great, thriving, cosmopolitan city right on the trade routes. So as a result, there are people from any and every country either resident in Antioch or passing through. And we find in Acts chapter 11 in the, in the first couple of verses, 19 through 21, suddenly a strange thing occurs. Christianity jumps its ethnic boundary. It overflows from being a Jewish Religion, a Jewish thing. It overflows the Jewish community. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. And Christianity began among his people, the Jewish people. And suddenly, here in Antioch, for the first time, it crosses that ethnic boundary. And now suddenly, the church in Antioch is different. Suddenly... It is filled with many different nationalities. So the church in Antioch is this lively, growing, multicultural, multi-ethnic body of believers. And that's a brand new thing in the world. It's not just new for Christianity. It's new as a phenomenon in the world. Here for the first time in the ancient Near East, we have a single community of people that are diverse in culture, gender, ethnicities, and social groupings. And this kind of family never existed until this moment. So the leaders of Christianity, the apostles and pastors who are still back in Jerusalem, they send one of their wisest and kindest and gentlest and greatest ambassadors of the faith to go see this thing that is brand new. They send Barnabas. So Barnabas travels from Jerusalem to Antioch to check things out. And when he gets there, he is utterly delighted. 
Not because he was raised in a culture to value that. No. This was as far off of his radar as it is for somebody who lives by NPR to fall in love with somebody who watches Fox. This was completely off his radar. There was no reason for him to be delighted for this except for one thing. Notice what it says in verse 23. He saw that it was the grace of God. So when Barnabas sees this new kind of family that has come into existence, this multicultural, multi-ethnic church, he realizes this is the work of God's grace. And in order to begin to sustain such a thing, because of the enormous pressures that he knows are going to be put on this church, because society doesn't live by these rules, nobody else has acted like this before, This is a very strange thing. He knows that just because it's happened doesn't mean it will last. And so he needs to help bring the resources of the church in order to sustain this thing and nurture this thing. So he stops and has a think and he realizes we need a teacher. We need to find somebody who can take this work forward and give it the deep roots and the mental fiber necessary to keep it in balance. And so off he goes To find a no-name that he knew was something special. And he finds a cat named Saul. Who many of you know is about to have his name changed to the Apostle Paul. But he hasn't had any. He doesn't. Nobody knows about this guy except Barnabas. Who found him and discovered that he's got something in him that's unique. So he goes and gets Saul. Who becomes the Apostle Paul. And he brings him to the church in Antioch. To help with this amazing multicultural, multi-ethnic kind of family that's developing. We're told that in the first half of verse 26. He and Paul and Barnabas hunker down and spend a year with the church. Teaching them, meeting with them. And then in the last part of verse 26 we're told... This is the first time this group of people were ever called Christians. This is our birthday story. This is is where the name came from. It came from this amazing thing happening for the first time in world history. And then we arrive at verse 27 where we learn that around this time some traveling prophets from Jerusalem arrive in Antioch. And one of them, his name is Agabus, he stands up and he tells this church... What the Spirit of God had revealed to him. Notice it says in verse 27. There will be a famine. A great famine over the whole world. Now what does the church in Antioch do. When they were told in advance. That the coronavirus was about to cripple the world. What do they do? Well listen to verse 29. The disciples determined. Everyone according to his ability. To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, you could jump right over that. But here's the catch. It's striking that that this brand new church, that their reaction to a coming famine is not, how in the world are we going to survive? Instead, their reaction is not the knee-jerk, inward-looking anxiety, we're about to suffer. No, their response to an impending suffering is not to stockpile food. Their response is to prayerfully set about figuring out three things. Who's going to hurt more than us? 
Who's the most vulnerable to the impending famine? Number two, what can we do to help them? And number three, who are we going to send to bring this help? And the answers they come up with are, the people who are going to suffer the most are the original Christians in Jerusalem. And that makes sense, right? Because if you've been reading Acts, what did those original Christians do when they first fell in love with Jesus? They sold all their property. Now that does not set you up well for a famine, to divest yourself of possessions. And then they began to be persecuted. So put those two things together for about a decade. You've divested yourself of your possessions, and the government and the society have turned on you in hostility. This sets you up to be in the most vulnerable place for a famine. So what we're seeing is that this early church said, they're going to be the ones who suffer the most. Number two, we're prosperous. We've not sold all of our stuff. And we've not been treated hostily by our community. We're still in a place of economic stability. We're coming into this famine with some reserves. And so we've got resources we can share. And then they said, who are we going to send? Well, they did the same thing. Not only are we going to share our money, we're going to share our best leaders. Paul. Who's giving up Paul on the verge of famine? Now, What we're seeing is that when we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the pain of our world and we stop long enough to let the darkness come over us and we genuinely lament, when we do this, that is the place where the presence and the healing and the love of God dwells. And out of God's presence and God's healing and God's love, we get new possibilities the world has never considered. New acts of kindness that have never been done. And new hope. You see, we must make no mistake about it. The way the church in Antioch responded to the famine was a brand new thing in world history. That was a new act of kindness. You see, when the multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Antioch responds to famine by feeling a loving obligation to a monocultural group in a city 300 miles away, this had not happened before in world history. This reaction to suffering was a completely unprecedented move. 2,000 years later, It's not a big deal to us. It's not new to us. We're accustomed to this kind of ethic. But in the high Roman Empire of the time, pity for the poor was considered weakness. It wasn't a thing you did. We're used to multinational organizations. But this was the first group to demonstrate that the followers of Jesus thought of themselves as translocal. They didn't belong just to their soil. This was the first time in world history that such a group expressed an obligation to a different ethnicity, a different group in a different city 300 miles away. This was a new kind of worldwide community where you have a deep sense of obligation and love that that doesn't care less for class or gender or race or ethnicity or nationality or social category. Never before in world history had a multicultural group in one city felt a loving obligation to a monocultural group in another city 300 miles away. It was simply not on the radar of the high Roman Empire. 
So my point is that in Acts chapter 11, we see this beautiful example of how we Christians, when we are faced with the ruin and misery of the world, we find that there are no words left to express to God the pain. In those moments, it is the Spirit of God active within our inmost being that is doing the very interceding we long to do but don't have the words to do. And that is the place where the presence and healing and love of God dwells and draws forth from the church new possibilities, new acts of kindness, and new hope for the world. So, is that happening? What are the new possibilities? What are the new acts of kindness? What is the new hope that God can bring into the glorious ruins of our world today? Well, let's start by asking the question the church in Antioch asked. Who's more vulnerable than you? Who has less power than you? Who has less accumulated resources than you? Who is more at risk from the particular pandemic, social unrest, political chaos, racial injustice? Who is most vulnerable? And what do we have that we can share? And who can lead us in sharing this? That's our job. That's what it means to be a city on a hill right now. God's city, the church, our sense of identity is not first and foremost that we're Americans. Or that we're members of the Harrisonburg community. Or that we're white or black or Republican or Democrat or male or female or Anglican. Our first and foremost identity is that we are members of Jesus' church. And that is where we owe our highest loyalty. We are a worldwide people, united not by any national boundaries, but by the one body of Christ. So who in our city is most vulnerable right now to the pandemic, the political hostility, the economic meltdown, the racial tension? Are you moving toward them? Are you responding to the needs of the vulnerable, either through your work or through being a neighbor or some other way? We are a city on a hill, and God has a particular rule, way of life, set of laws for this city. God has a particular vision for the church. And what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 11 is that in a time like we're living in now, the church's first thoughts must be for the poor. That's our first move. We draw in their pain until it strikes us mute. It's so much owned by us. Not saying what my experience has been, but what is the experience of those who are suffering the most? And we bring it in so deeply and we really stop. We really let it come over us until it brings us to a place where we don't even have words left. And then we rise up out of that lament and move toward 
the vulnerable. We share our resources with them. We treat others with humility and service. And when we're doing this, we're living up to our name. We're living up to our history. We're living up to our calling. That's what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and in Psalm 8, which is a reflection on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We heard that God made humans originally to reign over creation with him as his vice regents. God has allowed his power to be displayed through humans as we extend God's authority and God's good and wise and healing love and care and power into the world. But sin and death came along. And they ruined the good and beautiful world and God's good and beautiful vice regions. And so God sent his only son to defeat sin and death. And when we turn to Jesus in faith... God adopts us as his children, forgives us of our sins, and gives us the hope of resurrection from the dead. And we Christians, we are the group of humans that God has restored to our original purpose. The original purpose of humans was to have dominion. To to steward the whole creation, to draw it into flourishing. To participate. With the Son's rule over creation as God's renewed humans. That's what the church is. We have been restored into a relationship with the Creator. Filled with His Spirit. Forgiven of our sins. So that we can do what we were made to do in the beginning. The original reason God made us. To be His vice regents. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we're told that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father adopts us as his children so that we can share in Jesus' inheritance. And you know what his inheritance is in Romans? The whole world. Ruling the world. When you're saved, you're brought into that inheritance. Now, if I've lost you in all of that, let me put it in a far more practical and concrete way. There are times in life when bad things happen... And people say, why didn't God stop that? Why doesn't God do something about that? If God exists, he would do something. He would send a thunderbolt like Zeus and set this thing, sort it all out. Well, what I'm saying is that that's exactly what God does. He does do something about the world in meltdown, about injustice, about death and suffering. He does send thunderbolts. They're called Christians. It's called a shining city on a hill. It's called people with light. He sends the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the peacemakers, the hungry for justice people. They are the way that God acts in the world, that God works. They are more effective than any lightning flash or actual thunderbolt. Christians, using their initiative, they see where the real needs are that nobody else is meeting. And they go to meet them. They weep at the tombs of their friends and at the tombs of their enemies. Some of them will get hurt. Some of them will get killed. That's the story of Acts. Keep reading. All through, there are problems with being God's hands and ears and eyes and feet in this world. There are setbacks, there are shipwrecks, but God's purposes come through. These people, prayerful, humble, faithful Christians, are the answer not to the question, why do bad things happen, but to the question, who's hurting and what can be done?
Can you see it? Can you see that the Antioch church prayerfully figured out that the healing that God was going to bring into the pain and the suffering caused by the famine, the healing God was going to bring into the situation was them. God, do something about this. Okay. Take your money and give it to them. Take your very best leaders and send them there. But God, I want you to do something. Well, I am. I'm doing the thing that I made this world set it up to do, which is for you to be my vice regents, extending my love and mercy and justice and kindness and sovereignty into all of the world. This is exactly what Jesus said in our gospel reading. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is how God works in the world. God's primary engine of work in the world is the church, not the state. It's the church. No matter who wins the election, no matter how good or how bad the government is, God's primary engine of work in America is the church. You and me, we are citizens of the kingdom that will be standing when all the dust settles. We are subjects of the king. And doing the work of the kingdom, we are a society of forgiven sinners repaying our unpayable debt of love by working for King Jesus in everything we, every way we can, knowing that we are unworthy of the task. Our world is so out of joint right now. So what are we to do? We're to participate with God in bringing restoration to the world through lament and labor. That's the move of the church. First we pray with words or without them if we don't have any. We hold the pain and the injustice and the suffering and the death and the confusion and all the needs before God. Not just our needs but our community's needs. And then we get to work. We say what, what, is, what would God do in this moment? Well that's what I should do. That's what I'm here for. We get to work in healing and teaching and relief work among the poor and campaigning and comforting. These things grow out of lament. So as with the church in Antioch, our job right now is to say, who is at risk and what can we do? And do you know that's what's happening in our church? Do you know that in the midst of this pandemic, we've formed a 501c3. Mike Deaton is leading us in it. Pax de Nuba, the peace of God for Nuba. The most vulnerable people in the world, so much more vulnerable than us. Do you know that over the course of this year, they've raised like $80,000? And we're forming this partnership with them. My own dear wife, in the midst of the pandemic, has gone to work in our public school system. On the, in the um, autism group. The, the children who, some, most of them can't even speak. This is what she's doing every day. She's working with them. And how many more of you in this room have found yourself suddenly working with vulnerable people? Do you know what that is? It's not your genius. It is the Spirit of God doing what He's always done in times of pandemic. Raising up the church to move toward the most vulnerable. With its best resources and its best leaders. And so many of you are doing this. So many of you are working among the glorious ruins of our community. And it's so hard, isn't it? It's so tiring trying to repair the world. And I pray that today, the Lord's Day, 
will bring you back into some healing balm, some rest, some renewed confidence in what the novelist Walker Percy called a hint of hope in the new mercies of each day. Let's pray.